spoken night. I went to sleep that night without knowing that it would be the last night I ever spent in that bed at my parents' house in London. Meredith, my mum shook me awake. The room was dark, making it obvious it wasn't morning yet, but not time to get up for school anyway. Mum, I mumbled in my half-asleep state. It's time to go. Everything I told you about those stories is true. It's time for you to leave us so you can train to be a protector. Your dad and I, we've done everything we possibly can to prepare you. First Charge is the first book in the Destiny Initiative series by Amnesty. The book can be purchased in paperback from Amazon. The e-book can also be purchased on Kindle, Kobo, Apple Books and many others. Spoken Have you ever thought about what Santa Claus would be like as a zombie? Or maybe you've wondered how he would cope with climate change, Brexit or any number of issues facing the UK and beyond. Probably not, but if you're now wondering, you can buy The Twelve Deaths of Father Christmas by Amanda Steele. It's a collection of flash fiction stories with accompanying images in which Santa dies in different ways. There's a political slant to many of the pieces and added sarcasm. This is not for children. Thank you today for tuning in to Spoken Lake. Spoken Label was originally set up at the beginning of 2016 and as of recording has over 200 sessions in our archive. Although the podcast can be heard on Anchor, iTunes, Apple, Spotify, YouTube and literally 10 or 11 other networks, the full archive can be found at Spoken Label, all one word, Spoken label dot bandcamp dot com. On the bandcamp, it is set as pay what you want, so you are entitled if you wish, you can download it or stream it for nothing. But if you want to throw me a couple of pennies my way, it is always eternally grateful to help me maintain the operating costs and future running costs for this podcast. Enjoy. Spoken Hi guys, Andy N, Spoken Label, back in the house on Zoom again today. We're off to London today. Now, I've been chatting to the lady in question for a couple of weeks now, because I've been really enjoying the podcast, but we'll come on to that shortly. Rosie, would you like to introduce yourself to everybody? Tell them who you are. If you're going to your full career, but what, before we get to the podcast and your book, you might be here for two hours, but <laughs> I'll, let you, I'll let you go with it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you, Andy. Yeah, I'm Rosie Wilby. Hello. I am based in London nowadays, grew up in the Northwest, and I'm a comedian, author and podcaster. As you hinted, I have done many other things, including music and journalism in the past, but we'll say comedian, podcaster and author. Yeah. Now, so like, what I want to know, obviously, is um, people, if you can go, go on Wikipedia, they can read up on you. I, will, I think we'll recommend them do that to get an idea of your career. But... <laughs> And what I want to know, obviously, before you got to do novels and your podcast and obviously your comedy work, did did it all come in like a natural progression to you? Or was it like it's happened by accident in some cases? I think, yeah, I think sometimes the best things in life happen accidentally and, and very spontaneously. Um, of course, you know, a career in the creative arts, when you're actually trying to build it and trying to make a living, it takes a lot of strategy and planning. But sometimes those 
actual kind of shifts into a different genre or different medium can sometimes happen by accident, as certainly happened to me when I went into comedy. I had been doing music and I'd always loved the idea of writing songs since I was very young and, and had had bands and, and played gigs. But then when my band broke up and I, I did a few solo gigs, but kind of missed being with a band. I used to chat between the songs and kind of tell funny stories or very self-deprecating stories about why the songs were so bleak and, and miserable and whimsical. Um, and so I would try to lighten the tone, particularly when I was doing solo gigs, which I felt, you know, it didn't have the oomph of having a band behind me. And so if you had, you know, a kind of uh, <laughs> whimsical, wistful female singer-songwriter, of which there have been many over the years, kind of plucking away on our acoustic guitars on the kind of solo acoustic circuit. And there are many, many wonderful artists in that genre. But I always felt a bit self-conscious that it could sometimes get a bit too introspective. So I liked to kind of puncture that a bit with with some kind of self-deprecating story or comment and I would inadvertently make audiences at sort of rather serious and earnest folk nights suddenly crack up and and really laugh so very accidentally I thought oh, maybe I could do comedy maybe I could tell funny stories and and kind of make self-deprecating comments and and make people laugh and, and have a go at comedy. So I entered a few comedy competitions of which there are, well, many all around the country, but particularly in London uh, about 10, 12 years ago, there were quite a few that I entered and started finding myself in the latter stages of, and so started gigging on the comedy circuit. And I think what's interesting about gigging as a comedian, as opposed to as a musician, is you can just go out and do a lot of gigs and you can learn just by doing and by being on stage. Whereas if you're a musician, particularly a musician with a band, you kind of have to learn in the rehearsal room in a more kind of enclosed private setting. Whereas I guess you learn your trade as a comedian very much in public because you can do two or three gigs a night because you're doing a short set and there's a lot of different gigs all clustered together in big cities like London. And also there's not as much pressure on you to provide the audience, which when you're gigging as a band, you're sort of expected to bring your following with you. And it's a bit different in comedy. Yeah, I've, I've, I'm not, I've never done stand-up comedy. I'm more the sort of person to which it was an accidental comic. So I can't crack people, <laughs> but I can't structure it at all because like I'm more like a serious poet, really. But yeah. it's, it's a totally odds as me as a person. <laughs> that people are going to rub to me. But yeah. That's what I got when I, I noticed then. Obviously, you, you moved and you moved into comedy. You then went into direction. You did all kinds of things from that, didn't you? So I know you've done several shows at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival first of all. And what yeah. was that experience like? Oh gosh, Edinburgh Fringe is um, a whole mix of every emotion you could possibly imagine, from <laughs> rage and despair to to joy. Um, <laughs> it's it's pretty horrific being a performer there and, and I think there's a serious point to be made as well about how it's becoming less and less accessible I mean a fringe festival should be accessible to all performers whatever their class whatever their wage or their age or you know any of these these things whatever their sexuality or their gender but I think 
it's I think it's it's pretty tough because everything to, to go to Edinburgh Fringe now is so so expensive so I think it is becoming a bit exclusive and I think it's really challenging if you're sort of the kind of person who does things in with quite a DIY indie ethic. I mean, obviously, for my new book, I have got a major publisher, which is great to have a bit more of a machine behind you and a marketing team and all that kind of stuff. Although there's still a ton of stuff that you need to do on your own to kind of energize your own following and get them to engage with the book and support it. But I've always done those comedy shows that I've toured to Edinburgh and, and a little bit around the world. I've always done those pretty much off my own back. And I think it's becoming harder to go there as a one person operation now. I think most of the comics that go to Edinburgh Fringe, that the ones that you hear about, have a whole machine behind them of a promoter, an agent, a PR person and yeah and and you know a whole team of uh, of kind of street flyers and posterers and i think it's it's becoming uh, you know something of, of a machine and i i think it's kind of lost that really interesting indie ethic that i think edinburgh fringe had i mean probably longer ago really than even when i started going in the mid noughties yeah, yeah, but you know it, it still had some of that when i started going but of course it can it's a wonderful way of of really honing a show and really getting to grips with being in front of an audience every day or several times a day if you go and do guest slots as well and it's it's great but i have there is actually a bit in my book my new book that i've recently finished writing where i talk about a sort of loneliness that i've often felt at, at edinburgh fringe and how isolating it can be when you're you know kind of doing your show and uh, you know there's a certain kind of feeling of of uh, you know anxiety and stress because there's all this kind of pressure that you've got to get audience in and you're losing a, a heck of a lot of money there and th those kind of pressures take a toll on your friendships and relationships as well so I, I kind of had this scene where my partner has come up to see me and we're having this a kind of bleak cup of tea together and, and really not getting on. I mean, we do resolve, you know, a lot of the book is about how we resolve arguments quite quickly and how you have moments where you think maybe you're going to break up, but you, you sort it out. Um, <laughs> so I think Edinburgh, of course, it can be incredible, but I think it can be really challenging too. Yeah. Now, obviously, obviously apart from Edinburgh, I know you've also done a lot of work on radio. Now, yeah. before we come on to talk about your podcast, which I'm, I can certainly see is a development from that, tell us about your experiences on the radio. So we've done a lot of stuff here again. And I know you've done like it. I'm just reading here that you did. You used to present um, a weekly LGBT magazine show out in South London. So tell us yeah, about that's... what made you want to do radio then as well as stand-up comedy. I think... Um... Radio is, is a really exciting medium and now podcasting as well. I think there's something immediate about recording audio. Um, I mean, back in the day, I have even worked a little bit on film and TV sets as well. And my experience of film and TV was it was very, very slow. It takes forever to get one scene in the bag because you've got so many different things to worry about. Whereas with something like radio or now podcasting, I think things can, I think sound 
can be recorded in a very organic way. If there's background noise, I mean, depending on what it is, but sometimes that can merely add to the character of an interview or, or a, particularly if you're out and about at a, a demo or a march or something interesting, yeah. you, you want a bit of that background atmosphere. Yeah. And I, I kind of Maybe. like the immediacy of, of capturing audio like that, which I, I think you can do yeah, fairly same. easily and immediately. Yeah. The same because the same obviously like before we had a lockdown. I used to frequently do like meet up with people in cafes and stuff and do full recordings. And it's brilliant. You love all the back the background noise adds something, doesn't it, completely? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I um I did a bit of kind of a few courses and a bit of training just to get get uh, get some skills together and then I started presenting that weekly LGBT magazine show for London's arts station Resonance FM, which is like a very kind of cool, eclectic station. I've got, I've got friends that do work in that station. And uh, I, love, I love that station. Yeah, um, it's brilliant. There's some fantastic shows. There are some real um, legendary comedians who've, who've done a lot of work there over the years. Daniel Kitson sometimes sneaks in in the middle of the night to, to take over the studio. <laughs> And Stuart Lee has a history with them, people like Paul Foote as well. So, yeah, there, there were some brilliant people who've been involved with the station. And so I, I started doing that show, oh gosh, yeah, maybe 10, over 10 years ago and was presenting that every week. And for me, it was important as a gay woman to kind of have that platform for presenting creatives who identified as LGBTQI in some way. And, and sort of presenting their stories and their work and giving them a platform. So, so that's been really fun. And for a few years, that became Radio Diva because I brokered a bit of a kind of partnership with Diva magazine. So mm. I was hosting the show in the Resonance Studios alongside Heather Peace, who's a musician and actor as well. So we, we had some fun times as, oh, yeah. uh, in, in that incarnation too. Oh, completely. And obviously, now, moving forward now, then, obviously, now, like, um, I first came aware of you very recently through your podcast series, The Breakup Monologues. Now, tell people about that because it's a fantastic podcast. I've, I've been listening, I've gone for, the, gone for all the episodes up to, to get date now, and I've cracked up. It's a case of when, <laughs> like, you, when I've listened to some work, so I'm like, I, I have one week in the office and one week at home at the moment. And I went through your full, all the full episodes in about a week and a half at work. And my manager came up to me after through the Wendy's in Andrew, we stop, stop giggling on Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, I'm glad you're a fan. Well, to talk about the history of the breakout monologues, I probably have to backtrack a tiny bit to talk mm. a little bit more about my work as a comedian over the years and going to Edinburgh Fringe. Um, because over the last decade, I've toured a trilogy of shows all about love and attraction and some of the psychology behind how we conduct our romantic relationships and what sort of people we're attracted to, what kind of biological things determine our sexual orientation, what factors. And so there was a show called The Science of Sex that I performed at the Fringe and toured around the world in 2009, 2010, so yeah, about a decade ago. And then that 
led to a, a kind of, well, not exactly a sequel, but the second part of the trilogy, which was called Is Monogamy Dead?, which became the title of my first book. And for that show, I did a whole survey asking what counts as cheating in a relationship, because I thought that was a really interesting question, um, maybe a more nuanced question than we realise, because a whole ton of people assume that fidelity and sort of cheating and monogamy is just about having sex with somebody else. Whereas for some people, their boundaries are much more around emotional uh, exclusivity and fidelity rather than necessarily what someone does in a more physical sense. So I think it's a very personal question. And well, I mean, that can lead to a whole, <laughs> a whole other interesting discussion. But that, that led to my first book and I did some more serious talks and articles as well off the back of that. Was it always planned for that to be a book then, was it, or, or did that come Was it always planned to yeah. be a book? Yeah, always planned um, to be a book. Not, not strictly, it's just, it, I suppose it was something in the, the back of my mind that it could be an interesting book, and particularly as that became more of an interesting discussion in the media, and we started to see more articles about things like open relationships and, and kind of different ways of talking about and thinking about relationships and a new kind of language about talking about relationships emerging. It definitely seemed like a good idea to do a book. In some ways, I might have kind of pitched my book a bit too early I was still maybe a bit ahead of the curve in terms of that discussion being being out there in the wider world but yeah I think it's it's a whole fascinating area that, that there are so many assumptions about how we sort of should in inverted commas conduct a relationship whereas you know <laughs> the where do those rules come from it's, it's kind of really fascinating but as I was going to say, yeah, um, sorry, sorry. The, no, don't go on. No, interesting question. Thank you. Um, the final part of the trilogy, all about love and relationships, was a solo show that I toured about about a breakup, and that was a kind of comedy storytelling show, and that was actually called the Conscious Uncoupling, uh, which is of course a, a term that was made famous a few years ago by you know Gwyneth Paltrow, and. Um, this idea of a sort of ethical separation and I was kind of interested in in that whole idea of whether we can actually separate amicably and ethically when it's there are so many fraught emotions involved so that was a solo show but after that there were quite a few people who kind of were talking to me afterwards fellow performers and friends about their breakup stories and it seemed like there was something I could do with other people sharing their breakup stories and a wider discussion about breakups, why we don't talk about them enough, why we don't sort of share strategies for recovering and finding ourselves again, and whether even breakups are sometimes really good and healthy and, and renewing and energizing. So uh, the breakup monologues was was born initially as a sort of live chat show. At first, I wasn't recording it as a podcast, but then it seemed to make sense to start recording a podcast. And I was lucky enough to get a little bit of funding for the pilot kind of early stages of it as well. Yeah, it's been fantastic. It really has your podcast doing it like that way. So it's come like and what you're saying, like almost a natural progression then really, wasn't it? So one thing led to another then. So and obviously like... Yeah. Anybody that's been reading up on you will go like, obviously, you've hinted, we've hinted already, like your second book's going to be out next year, also called that same title, bizarrely enough. So 
But yeah, was that, also, again, was it also planned to be a book now? Did that come naturally again, did it? Yes, it's all kind of a natural progression. I think when you start delving into a topic as much as you need to, to do an Edinburgh show or to launch a podcast, then you realise that you're accumulating a whole tonne of research and information and often way, way more than you can cram into a sort of 50-minute Edinburgh show. So, I, you know, I was reading a whole lot of stuff about the kind of psychology behind monogamy and jealousy and, you know, kind of mate guarding and all of these kind of things. So uh, I realised that, you know, that, yeah, once again, as with Is Monogamy Dead leading to a book, uh, the Breakup Monologues podcast, it seemed to make sense to pitch a book. I mean, I knew that I would want to do another book and once the podcast had started getting some listeners and getting people engaged and getting some nice feedback and reviews it seemed it just seemed like a sensible thing to um kind of to kind of keep with that title the breakup monologues because i think one thing i have done sometimes which has confused people is i've had so many different ideas and different show titles and different things that I'm doing because in amongst the trilogy of solo shows about love and relationships there was another solo show about feminism uh, kind of a nostalgic look back to feminism called 90s woman and looking back to feminism in the 1990s which was a sort of multimedia show which was a bit different again to a lot of the other stuff I was doing so <laughs> you know I think I've often thrown too many ideas out at the same time I mean I think around that 2013-2014 time I was possibly simultaneously touring three different shows you know because different <laughs> festivals would ask for different ones like I, I, I kind of I know, it's like I'd made the kind of well slightly ironic with hindsight decision in 2013 that I wouldn't take my show about feminism to the Edinburgh Fringe because I didn't think feminism would really get much traction in terms of audiences and press what was interesting was feminism was the like the big big theme at Edinburgh Fringe that year <laughs> I had no idea that was going to happen um, so I, uh, I I rather hastily wrote my show about monogamy for that year's Edinburgh in, instead but um, you know the, the, it's all part of the creative process and journey isn't it um, and we have to go with what our own instincts are about our own creative path and creative work rather than trying to second guess you know what what's going to be the hot topic um you know sometimes luckily you happen upon something at the, the right time but uh yeah it's <laughs> it's all part of the interesting creative <laughs> journey isn't it oh completely i think i'm always a believer in that everything comes through its natural point to you as an artist whether the yeah. world's caught up with you at that point and the ball came all together, certainly. So, over lockdown, then, and what have you been working on currently, then, apart from that? Have you got anything else on the goal moment, project wise? <laughs> um, over lockdown, it's mostly been writing this book, The Breakup Monologues, because um, I pitched it uh, to a publisher and an agent about a year ago, just over a year ago. And so the contract was signed. Um, well kind of just over sort of Christmas time um, and then yeah kind of got uh, an advance through just before lockdown so yeah it was kind of really that was suddenly became 
a much freer chunk of time in which I had that time to write the book. Yeah, is, I can see. Yeah, I would have had yeah. events and stuff going on, but but obviously diary started to uh, empty, <laughs> empty. massively uh, <laughs> emptied. Yeah, I think you probably you probably look at yourself now like if things have been what we term in a normal world. Obviously, like the book could have ended up in quite a different book if you've been like gigging up, gigging all the time. And but like I said, because you've been had time to sit down and probably think about the book in a different way, I think it's probably took you in a slightly different way, probably anticipated. Yeah, possibly. Um, yeah, I think it, I think it's um, that kind of introspective space is quite good for writing, um, and it was it was definitely good during the you know the the most severe lockdown to at least have a project to focus on but now i must say like many people i was kind of anticipating things being more normal again by now <laughs> yeah <So, the> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah i get you completely with that so have you got any plans to bring back the bring back your podcast as another series or is it is that definitely definitely um i've been a bit stuck about what to do because i for series two and three of the breakout monologues they were all recorded live in front of an audience which i really enjoy i love doing it that way um we've been recording at king's place in london and also at one or two other festivals like there was a festival called port elliott festival in cornwall which was wonderful and yeah i love doing it that way it also means you have a kind of income to cover paying things like I have an editor who charges me you know just really makes rates but still I need to pay him something to thank him for his time kind of tidying up the sound files and then uploading them and paying for podcast hosting and, and bits and pieces like that so and if any guests have any expenses or anything like that so that's kind of been my model for doing it since the funding ran out which I had for the first few episodes for uh, in season one so I've been a bit kind of thinking, oh, you know, what, what do I do now? So I was sort of hoping that I would be able to have live events again, but I think that's still a way off. So I am going to yeah. try recording. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try recording some remote episodes towards the end of this year because I'd like to start releasing a new season around Valentine's Day and to build up momentum and lead up to the publication of the book, which is going to be at the end of May. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. You have like, if the book's in the corner and it's come from the original series, if you can, to try and get another series going for yourself. And I think so straight away. That's why. So I do agree with you. Oh, good luck. Good luck. Definitely so. Now, that's pretty well my questions today to the you, Rosie. So if people want to find out more about you, where are the best going? Well, um, if they are on Twitter, I'm on there at Rosie Wilby. I'm also on Facebook, Rosie Wilby. And uh, there's also an Instagram for the podcast, which is at Breakup Monologues. And obviously the podcast is available free on iTunes and Spotify and all the podcast platforms. And I think, well, you found that, didn't you, Andy? So Yeah, iTunes. It, iTunes for me. Yeah, iTunes, <laughs> you found it on there. It's all there. And I also have a website, rosiewillbe.com. Um, so, yeah, you can kind of find me there and uh, drop me a line if you, if you want to find out what I'm doing. And, um, and, well, me and you actually started chatting on LinkedIn, didn't we? Yeah, so, that's the first time you know. I've actually made a contact with LinkedIn. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> 
the most mindful man. I don't know what you learned yesterday. I'm interested. I've gone to curious and podcast chat now. I, I, I do book most of my booking, obviously, over Facebook and Twitter occasionally. Oh, never, yeah. done it, never done it LinkedIn, actually. That's something different for me, that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I kind of have all kinds of different ways of uh, meeting people and connecting with people. Sometimes it's through people's publicists, if they've got a book out. Um, or sometimes it's directly, like you say, to the person on Facebook or Twitter. But yeah, I use LinkedIn a little bit as well. So, so yeah, I, I am on there too. Yeah, recommended. Look who Rosie up and linked in the contact. Yeah, <laughs> but also the book, um, if people want to check out the book, is Monogamy Dead. Um, of, that's the one that's available now. That's the first book. And that's on, you know, Amazon and all the kind of bookstores. Yeah, it's going to get in so on, all the usual places, yeah. All the, I, yeah, yeah, all the usual places. But it is um, available as a paperback and a Kindle and an audio book as well, which I narrated. Oh, so you can hear a sample actually if you go onto my amazon page you can you can hear a sample of, of i'll speak book. i'll speak about that afterwards i didn't, didn't, didn't know about that right so ah, right <laughs> but I, i'll what i'll do i will get you then to send me over to brief mp3 of it so then we can put we can put an extract with it in this podcast with it. i didn't know about that so i knew about the book oh, right. being kindle and paper i didn't spot the audio one but yeah what was your experience audio. like doing audio books did you get your Sound man to edit or edit it all down for you afterwards. Um, well, the, that was done by Audible, and they kind of just invite you into their studios and they assign you a producer. So they set it all up, um, and yeah, that was that was fun. It's a bit bizarre. I asked if I could split my sessions up because we recorded about seven and a half hours of audio, but and it's a lot because of course you. You know, sometimes you have to go again and do a little bit again because you made a bit of a stumble or something. Uh, so I did, I think, about four or five half days of recording. But they try and make you do it in two full consecutive days. And I had things going on. And also I just thought I would go mad. So I asked if I could break it up into a morning here or an afternoon there and slightly broke it up a bit because... <laughs> It's just a bit crazy. Like that, yeah. I couldn't do it. <laughs> but good, luck, good luck to you, Rosie. Thank you. Anyway, we'll conclude now. So hang around. I need to speak to you off mic anyway. So it's been a pleasure today. Really enjoyed it. Okay, great to speak to you. Take care, guys and girls. See you all soon. Spoken me. Disclaiming the disclaimer. At this point in pretty much every book about relationships, there's a disclaimer. They all say the same thing. At the bottom of page 8 of Aziz Ansari's fun and interesting modern romance, he says, This book is primarily about heterosexual relationships, and goes on to explain that if he tried to address LGBT relationships, he would need to write an entirely separate book. To use his casual language, well, write another book, dude. I don't mean to single him out specifically. His is just the latest in about 50 similar disclaimers that I've read. It seems a pretty paradoxical poor do for governments around the world to start allowing same-sex couples to marry, but not be open to embracing, discussing and fully understanding the uniqueness of those partnerships. Thus far, the equality debate has been based upon a short-sighted and unsophisticated presumption of sameness, 
Yet being gay in a heteronormative world is akin to being left-handed in a world designed for right-handed people. And I should know, I am left-handed. Apparently an unusually high proportion of gay women are. Tin openers, toilet flushes, doors, buildings, computers, everything is designed the wrong way round. Yet, because I'm in a minority, I'm expected to adapt and accept my lower level of comfort. In the same way, everything about love and sex in our world is viewed through a prism of assumed heterosexuality, from relationships, self-help and psychology books, romantic films, TV documentaries about love, to marriage guidance and therapy services, we are expected to flip genders around in our heads. I have lived proudly as an openly gay woman for most of my adult life. Yet this mind-blowing four-year journey into the dark heart of monogamy has made even that label, once firmly attached with superglue, look decidedly shaky. I probably am occasionally attracted to men, Brad Pitt, Johnny Depp and Mark Ruffalo would top the list. To be honest, I'd be hard-pushed to choose between them and my top women, Kate Winslet, Julianne Moore and Kristen Scott Thomas. Mind you, the mathematical probability of all these six Hollywood stars making a simultaneous beeline for a modestly successful jobbing English comedian is probably lower than winning the lottery a hundred times over. So maybe I shouldn't sweat over it. I've had to accept that while my romantic drive is massively biased towards the feminine, my sexuality is much more ambiguous and hard to pin down. I pinned it down for two decades because I enjoyed being part of a smaller community and an energised countercultural political campaign. I found a sense of family and belonging. What I didn't consider is how much harder it would be to access sex. To get sex with a man, you only need to walk out of the house and smile at one. To get sex with a woman, you have to jump through a series of metaphorical hoops. That is, if those hoops are on fire and wrapped in barbed wire. More and more lethal hoops are added the further you get into a monogamous relationship. Recently, I conducted a not very scientific experiment on the tube. I tried engaging in eye contact and conversation with random men. On average, it took them two tube stops, approximately four minutes, to offer their phone number and ask me out on a date that same evening. I felt positively magnetic, even though not one of my suitors was quite A-list material. I daren't repeat the experiment with women due to the variety of angry and defensive responses my advances have triggered over the years. The most extreme of these was being barred from the entirety of North London by one casual lover. Reader, I have definitely broken the ban. Occasionally, I switch my Tinder feed over to men just to marvel at the vast array of sexual choices I would have if I were straight. It's impossible even to reach the there's nobody new around you message. While researching this book, I've had to put every decision I've ever made under intense scrutiny and face the terrifying, confusing possibility that I might not be as gay as I thought I was when I first came out. And because I've realised firsthand what a slippery concept sexuality is, I've decided to write a book for everyone. Rather than forcing us into separate, neat, tidy boxes, let's explore what we can learn from one another. Gay couples have long been pioneers of relationship models that have gone on to catch on more widely. Spoken, mate.